everyone. My name is Sara Pantoliano. I'm the chief executive here at ODI. Thank you so much for joining us today ahead of the G7 Leaders Summit to talk about how we can all rise to the global vaccine challenge to finally beat this deadly pandemic. I'm really delighted to be joined by a fantastic panel of speakers. I'll introduce them shortly, uh, but I just want to remind the audience, first of all, that we will be taking questions and comments from all of you uh, during our Q&A session at the end, in the second part of the, the webinar. So please use the chat box below to feed your inputs and ask your questions during the discussion. But also, let's make sure that we engage on Twitter and, you know, we have this discussion um, through the um, hashtag ODI vaccination and remember to tag the um, ODI underscore global um, um, handle, please. I think this conversation comes at a really critical moment, you know, considering that India and a number of other countries are going to a really devastating third wave. And India in particular is a major vaccine exporter. But it's you know, clear that we continue to have some fairly critical barriers to uh, vaccine equity. And we have new variants continuously threatening you know, global and local recovery efforts. So I think there's perhaps never been... a a public policy challenge where national and international interests are so closely aligned. We've heard the UK Prime Minister you know, recently saying that he will urge G7 leaders to vaccinate the world against COVID by the end of next year. And in many ways, the success of this summit will really be judged primarily on whether concrete measures are agreed to accelerate the global response to the pandemic. And big actions are needed. I mean, we've heard from the IMF there's estimated $50 billion um, being needed to really support this effort. But so far, the commitments are short of about $31 billion. We've seen 200 current and former leaders writing to the G7 to urge you know, them to really contribute two-thirds of the sums needed. Um, and you know, the, the IMF and, other, and others really urging high-income countries to share one billion doses of the vaccine by the end of 2021. But so far, we've seen only 225 million um, doses uh, being pledged. So what do countries battling the virus and struggling to vaccinate people need? And how can the G7 and others rise to this global challenge? I couldn't think of a better um, group of speakers to be with us today to help you know, navigate um, this challenge and answer some of these questions. So let, them let me introduce them. I'll start with um, Marianne Saraka-Yeo. Um, Marianne is the Managing Director for Resource Mobilization, Private Sector Partnerships and Innovative Finance at Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Since joining Gavi in 2011, Marianne's leadership has helped raise the largest amount of resources ever for Gavi. Um, she's the lead negotiator with G7 and G20 leaders, with corporations and with high net worth individuals that really are driving the expansion of Gavi's investors base. Um, Ashok Malik is the policy advisor in the Ministry of External Affairs of the government of India, of India where he works closely with the Foreign Secretary. Ashok is also part of the Empowered Group, the interministerial institutional process that has been set up by the government of India to address specific aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic response. And last but not least, Jeremy Konindik. Um, Jeremy is the Executive Director of the COVID-19 Task Force at USAID. Um, prior to this role, Jeremy was a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development and previously served in the Obama administration as the director of USAID's Office of US Foreign Disasters Assistance, OFTA. He actually, in that 
position led a number that responds to a number of international crises and notably the epidemic in West Africa between the Ebola epidemic between 20, uh, 2014 and 2016. It is a real privilege to have all of you with us today. Thank you all for joining us. It's a busy week for the three of you, so I'm particularly grateful for you taking the time. Uh, let me first turn to Ashok. Ashok, the situation in India is dire. Um, can you tell us a little bit um, you know, concretely about the reality of the crisis, but also how can international partners help? Yeah. Only... Sorry, am I audible? Great. Uh, thank you for having me here, Sarah, and thank you uh, to ODI for organizing this. And uh, uh, hi, Mari and Jeremy, it's glad to meet you electronically. Uh, I would have liked to have met you in person, and I would like to be in, in London today, but. Uh, Never mind, we, we do it another time. Uh, coming to the situation in India, uh, it's, it's a little ironical that uh, the number of new cases in India today is uh, 90,000. And we are actually uh, sighing in relief because uh, this is uh, way below the second surge peak of 425,000 new cases a day. Uh, and yet, if you go back to our first wave, which concluded around December 2020, it peaked at exactly this number, 90,000 new cases a day. And uh, this should give you an idea about the intensity of the second wave. It, uh, we had perhaps planned or modeled for twice the number of people falling ill to, to the coronavirus uh, as it had happened in the first wave. But the numbers went up by a factor of over four. Uh, why did this happen? It was a, a perfect storm of multiple factors. Uh, I guess there was pandemic fatigue. And as the, the, the first wave numbers plummeted, uh, people began to go out uh, to, to, to work, to uh, meet friends, to, uh, to the market, and so on and so forth. And maybe we all became a little complacent. Uh, second, uh, we started our vaccination program uh, for specific high-risk groups in January, which was exactly when the numbers fell. And uh, that again led to complacency that didn't lead to vaccine hesitancy as much as uh, a sense that we could, we could always get vaccines a few months down the line and it wasn't that urgent, that sense of urgency wasn't there. Third, uh, we were hit by in different geographies in the country by, by three different mutations, three variants, each of which was significantly more transmissible than the original uh, coronavirus variant. Uh, we are not certain they were more lethal, but they were certainly more transmissible. And uh, that led to a perfect storm. Uh, the number of uh, uh, medical facility, health facilities, uh, the sheer volume of medical equipment, Medical oxygen production in the country between the first surge and the second surge had gone up about between 70 and 80 percent. But even that just wasn't enough because we uh, we were dealing with numbers that were overwhelming. Uh, and very frankly, uh, if there is a third wave or another wave of this nature in, in any country, uh, I don't think any system is geared towards dealing with literally millions of new patients coming into uh, the hospital or wanting to come into the hospital system uh, every week, week after week. Uh, 
So the race now is between vaccination and a third wave. A third wave will come. How intense it will be and how damaging it will be depends on how many people can get vaccinated. And that's where we are. Uh, towards the beginning of uh, our vaccination program, we had enough vaccines to, to make our contribution to COVAX, to, to give to, to other countries as, as bilateral grants, as well as to allow our companies to, to make commercial sales. And we actually sent out 66 million vaccines. Uh, but now it's proving to be a problem because uh, immediately there is a, an, an urgency uh, and within the country and uh, more and more people are lining up to get vaccinated. And uh, frankly, there is a, a supply side problem rather than a demand side problem. Uh, we hope that will be remedied in the months ahead, but uh, that's where we are. Thanks, Ashok. That really uh, sort of hits the nail on the head. Um, Marianne, you've heard from Ashok, you know, it's a race between vaccination and the third wave, but there is also obviously a problem in terms of supply. Can you tell us a little bit about the scale of you know, the financing gap for vaccines? And then perhaps later in the discussion, we can also talk about you know, the production, the supply, but the financing gap. No, I think, you know, look, I think Ashok presented very well the, the situation in India. And I think what this situation shows is, of course, um, the threat borne by, by various mutations. And that threat is quite important. So clearly, when we, we think about the strategy, it's about, of course, minimizing the risk for this new variant by protecting the most vulnerable uh, everywhere, really, from the most severe um, uh, cases of, of the disease, but also uh, expanding that, um, limiting the spread of the virus who expanded the vaccination coverage. So clearly immunization is key here, but what matters coming to financing is the importance of contagion financing, having financing early, because clear and, and a diversified portfolio to be of course able to, to, uh, to respond differently to, to, the, to the demand. And that's particularly why the GAVI COVAX Advanced Market Commitment was created in the sense as an innovative finance mechanism to 92 um, low and middle income economies, including India, to basically enter early on into an advanced purchase agreement reserve doses to be able to, to, to deliver later. So, you know, part of the, of the promise of COVAX has been, uh, in a sense, uh, achieved by being able to deliver the doses, let's say, uh, 80 days after they were actually delivered in, in uh, higher income economies compared to the previous crisis where it was more, more than a year. But clearly, as we have heard, and Ashok said it very well, you know, you still have this threat of, of, of variance and the difficulties of supply. And I think that's where, in a sense, when we look at the financing, we do have to have several scenarios because there are different scenarios of the evolution of, of the uh, of the disease. I mean, on the on the positive side, and uh, you know, as as you you probably heard, you know, we have we have now just closed a, a successful financing round, you know, and thanks to uh, the support of the U.S. and and, and Japan, obviously for the you know, for, for COVAX AMC to have, you know, 1.8 billion doses, you know, this year to be delivered by the end of the year until the beginning of next year. So that we, that should allow to uh, cover roughly 30% of the population of, of these uh, 92 countries, which is important because it represents half of the adult population 
we have to remember that these countries have a have an, uh, an adult population that, that is, of course, younger than in most high-income countries. So 30% is, is a meaningful number. But of course, we do need to continue because uh, we, we need to uh, limit the spread of, of the disease. And there, of course, you know, it depends much on the evolution and if we need boosters, right? Uh, you know, in terms of immunity and this, we, we are not quite sure, sure yet. So you have you, you have various figures. If you consider boosters and you want to go to 60% of coverage in AMC countries, that represents the adult population, you know, and depending on, you know, let's say an average price of $7, you could go to 23 billion. Of course, if you consider that you need less boosters or boosters just for the, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, high risk population, you know, you, you, you have a at the other lower range, uh, 10 billion. The point is that the numbers are important, but most importantly, we have to work on several on several aspects. Uh, um, indeed, getting the financing early, and that's really what's important. Getting, of course, uh, uh, the supply, because as Ashok was indicating, there are issues of, of supply, and in the immediate, in the immediate. Um, Term, what's important is very important the dose sharing element so you know to to complement the supply and we are we are very hopeful for for, for the g7 uh, in that regard um but of course also we shouldn't forget what's important also the role of countries being ready you know it's really i think it's really important sarah to understand that it, it requires work from all of us of course, from, from the donors, from the countries, from the manufacturers, but preparing also to receive this largest ever immunization campaign will be important. And there also there are needs in terms of helping the countries prepare. I'll come back to you on that uh, later, Mariage, but let me go to Jeremy to ask what you, know, you heard about the critical issues being around financing and supply. What can the US, what can other G7 countries do you know, to help with you know, the two critical aspects of this? Tell us what you're doing within the, the USA task force on COVID-19. I'm sure that is what you're focusing on every day. It is. Uh, I probably am. am uh, vaccines and oxygen are probably the two things that, uh, that, that occupy most of my time these days. And I think that's that makes sense because vaccines are what will save lives um, uh, in, in an increasing way until the end of this year, but really I think in a large way next year as, as the supply uh, really comes on, online globally at scale. Um, and oxygen is what saves lives in the immediate term when we see surges as, as a shock referenced. Um, uh, so it is a huge preoccupation. Um, President Biden, We'll be making some announcements, and the G7 leaders will be making some announcements on this at the summit. Uh, one thing I think I can say now, because it's been publicly reported and the the White House fact sheet has gone live, is um, the uh, you know, one of the one of the key ways we'll be doing this is um, as President Biden is announcing the the half a billion dose commitment to Gavi of of Pfizer doses that the U.S. will be procuring, um, and uh, that you know critically. Is obviously a very large number of doses, um, but also the sequencing is really important. So one of the challenges that Gavi has had is, um, you know, the the kind of the different different doses from different producers come online at different times, and because of the situation in India, um, much of the Indian supply that Gavi had relied upon 
um, is now needed for domestic use in India. And so we, we see that we see this Pfizer contribution as an important way to kind of fill some of that gap until the Indian supply to Gavi can come back online. And so it's really, uh, really critically important that of the 500 million doses, 200 million of those will be available this calendar year starting later in the summer. And, um, and so that will help to fill some of the supply gap uh, on, on Gavi's side. The other, um, you know, the other major, one of the other major steps we're taking there, as the president announced a few weeks ago, is beginning to share U.S. owned doses from our own supply. And so the president has committed, uh, made an initial commitment of 80 million doses. Um, and, you know, we expect that that could grow as, um, as uh, you know, we get additional deliveries and we see continued improvement in vaccination coverage rates here in our country. Um, so we don't have we don't have new numbers, but but you know I think it's it's um, um, it's plausible we'll be able to go beyond that. Um, and we're also doing things like investing in expanding the manufacturing base for vaccines globally. And so uh, through the Quad commitment uh, that Japan, U.S., India, and Australia made a few months ago. We are we're putting financing through our development finance finance corporation into expanding vaccine production in India at a scale that should produce another billion an extra billion doses. Um, we're also seeking other opportunities. The DFC is partnering with the International Finance Corporation and some of its its other peer uh, development finance bodies to also uh, pursue opportunities to expand manufacturing in Africa. Um, we see that as critically important. Obviously, the African Union has called for this. Um, I think what we see with the situation in India and the situation in, in other large countries that are vaccine producers is, you know, there is a strong, um, when vaccines are being produced predominantly in countries that themselves have large populations that need those vaccines, it's very politically difficult to, to um, both kind of meet domestic needs and send those abroad. So diversifying and expanding the, the, the production base for vaccines globally is gonna be very, very important. So we're investing in that um, as well, you know, both initially initially in India for global export, but also um, exploring actively exploring opportunities in, in Africa. Um, and we're also quite focused on the supply chain for vaccine inputs. And what we've seen so far is that's actually the biggest bottleneck right now. There is, there is more production capacity than is being used right now in the world because um, so much of the so many of the producers rely on a on a small set of companies that produce these single use consumable items for vaccine production and there are just not enough of those in the world and so we're also looking at at, at exploring ways to expand the production of those and optimize the use of those to expand and accelerate the the number of available vaccines and I, the last thing I'd, I'd point to is just the financing piece so obviously the president's announcement today is a big step forward on, on vaccine procurement financing. But I think we are really like literally leaving money on the table with the structure of how some of the multilateral development banks put together their initial vaccine financing. Um, you know, the Asian Development Bank put 9 billion on the table for countries, the World Bank put 12 billion on the table. Um, uh, others have put some on the table, but very, very little of that has actually translated into deals. And I think it speaks to some design, some, some pretty significant design flaws in how that money was originally conceived, and um, I hope prompts some some reflection in the in the multilateral development banks about that. I mean, it's not the first time we have seen the MDBs struggling, frankly, to move money out the door in a timely way when faced with a, a, a serious disease outbreak. Thanks. Thanks, Jeremy, and you know, 
it's fantastic to hear of all uh, the commitments that have already been leaked and perhaps more to come and all the work that the US is doing, you know, to to really accelerate, you know, this global response. Um, but Ashok, maybe, you know, to come to you, what can other G7 countries do? What are you expecting or hoping to hear, you know, from uh, G7 leaders this weekend? Uh, thanks. You know, I, I, I agree with almost everything Jeremy said, and uh, uh, he's pointed to how absolutely heartwarming international cooperation has been over the past year. Uh, uh, countries have sent each other medicines, India sent medicines, the US sent us oxygen. Uh, we've, we've all tried to help, but frankly, we've also all struggled. Because uh, as Jeremy said, capacities are limited. If you look at previous recent vaccine rollouts, uh, there were vaccines meant for specific populations, so children or adolescent girls, perhaps, or certain categories of adults. This is a vaccine which we all expect will be universally delivered. That's uh, potentially 8 billion people in the world. And with booster shots, that eight, that's multiples of 8 billion. And uh, we need more diversified capacities, not just for vaccine manufacture, but as Jeremy suggested, for, for ingredient manufacture. One of the things that occupies uh, us in the Indian Foreign Office is uh, tying up ingredient supplies for the, the three COVID vaccines being made in India currently, and roughly half a dozen more vaccines that are in various stages of development, and we hope will be manufactured in India this calendar year, maybe early next year, but perhaps this calendar year. Uh, now, as you can imagine, these vaccines use literally hundreds of ingredients. Some of these are produced in India. Some of the, many of these are produced in, in other countries. We have a list of 380 ingredients used collectively by all these vaccines, uh, the supplies of which are stressed. About 200 of them are from the United States, another 100 from Germany. And then you have two from Poland, one from Singapore, one from Denmark. And why are these supplies stressed? It's not because people are denying us these. In some countries, you do have temporary export bans because they prioritized their own manufacture. But the biggest problem is uh, you've suddenly seen demand go up from zero to eight billion. And small companies or, or specialized companies do not have the ability or the capacity to ramp up production of their specific ingredient in a matter of months. And quite frankly, if I were a small company in, let's say, California or in Warsaw, I would wonder, do I want to put in lots of money to expanding capacity for one specific ingredient uh, when I don't know how long the COVID vaccine market will last? Will it last for one year, three years, five years, 10 years? I don't know. Uh, will a bank give me a commercial loan to, 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 to fund that expansion? Uh, what about uh, uh, getting, okay, mRNA vaccines, we know need cold chains, need, need extra special cold chains. Uh, to get a Pfizer vaccine or a Moderna vaccine to Africa is a great idea, but do they have the cold chains there? And how long do they need to invest in in cold chains. It's, so it's what I'm trying to suggest is it's not just the end vaccine that we need to put money in, into, for the, the manufacturer which we need to put money into. It's the entire vaccine pipeline from ingredients to, to arms that needs to be expanded. And we will need to build in redundancies. Uh, we will need to, it's like investing in an oxygen concentrator. Uh, 
for your house and never needing to use it. Uh, you, it's, it's, it, 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 at one level, you may consider it a wasted investment. At another level, you should be glad you never got to use it. The world will have to come together to build redundancies uh, into every inch of the vaccine pipeline, from, from ingredients to, to, to vaccines themselves, uh, to, of course, storage and cold chains. And uh, this is going to call for something much more strategic than that conventional advanced market commitments for, for vaccines. Because as I said, those were needed for specific demographics or specific groups or smaller populations. This is something which is going to be universal and probably there for multiple years. I couldn't agree more, Ashok. Um, Marianne, I mean, Ashok says we need to invest in the entire vaccine pipeline. And you were saying before how actually part of the problem is the readiness, um, particularly in low-income countries that so far have vaccinated barely 1% of their population. So what, what can we do to reach this target, to move, as Ashok says, to something more strategic, um, you know, more and global, actually, um, that can really lift the effort? No, I think that my point is that there needs to be efforts at several levels in parallel. I think one of the key things that Ashok just said right now is the contingent financing is very important, but it's also financing at risk. One of the big reasons why capacity was not developed early enough that a lot of countries were not investing at risk, you know, uh, uh, and, and there, there was this concern or even institutions and, and in a sense, that would then leads to this kind of supply shortage where you wait until to know more and in, eventually there's not enough uh, 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 supply. So really uh, the upfront funding to reserve those seats to expand the capacity early on and indeed to, to be able to have redundancies and not just seeing that because you need in sense to have the flexibility to, to, to move. That's one thing. The other part, of course, for the countries is really indeed to invest in uh, in their system. And a lot has been done. We have been working with uh, our donors, including USAID and other agencies, to start preparing the countries. But ultimately, indeed, you know, if you look back at the beginning, you know, you had first one vaccine that was uh, pre-qualified and then others. So you do need to think also about the, ca the country absorption capacity and, and capacity to, in a sense, uh, uh, adapt to, to the variety of vaccines that we have. And now we are lucky because we, we have several of them, but, you know, it requires various levels of preparedness. And I think that now has to be the, now that the, we know the vaccine is there, that their vaccines are coming, doses are coming, and thank you, Jeremy, for all the efforts and the US. <laughs> the focus really needs to be on, on, on the delivery in parallel so that when these, when these doses arrive in countries, they are not idle, right? One point also that I, I want to make and that, that is important, of course, that Jeremy hinted at too, is that in the, in the front loading of contingent financing, indeed, it's also uh, uh, leveraging the capacity of each organization. The, the advantage of COVAX indeed has been to be able to reserve in advance with the funding uh, uh, received. It's true that the multilateral development bank with a country model that is more a retail model, is a model that works when actually the vaccine is already plenty available in, in big quantity because the investment comes much later. 
So now it's about bridging these two types of investments so that we can leverage and get that investment earlier to the point of, of making it actually uh, uh, much more uh, productive. And, and, and that will be important, but also to support the countries huh, because they do have uh, a country model that can help the, 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 to support the system in countries. So I think that that will be a... That, that, that will be quite important. But of course, also for the country readiness, we should not forget that one of the strengths also of the immunization system is that the routine immunization system before the pandemic has grown a lot, has strengthened thanks to the, to the investment of, of a lot of partners and, and, and donors like USAID. And it's actually bidding on this system now to stretch it to, in a sense, receive the volume of vaccines. If I hear from my, my health colleagues, you know, I mean, we are going to roll over four times the volume of vaccine that we typically roll in country. So this is a major endeavor, also building on a very strong immunization system. That has been the strength of our partnership with India. For example, we have 20 years of partnership with India that was really built on the most extraordinary um, immunization system. And that's how we have been able to introduce six new vaccines, reduce the number of unimmunized by 40% in five years. So it's, it's feasible, but it's really building, working on all these things, not just one aspect. It's really uh, working in parallel uh, in, in these various dimensions. Thanks, Maria. I was going to come to Jeremy actually with the same question that one of my colleagues from ODI has also just come from the audience. We clearly think alike. So I was going to ask you exactly the same, picking up on your point before. But Mark Miller, who is our director of the public and development finance team at ODI, is, is asking Jeremy, you know, he's keen to understand more about what MDBs could be doing um, to make sure that the money on the table is translated into vaccination programs. What has gone wrong? What are the barriers? And you know, is it reasonable to expect the low-income countries, um, you know, to borrow for vaccine given global benefits? And just just a reminder that yeah. after this, I'm opening more widely to the Q and A. So do put your questions in the chat. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a, a, an important question. Um, so is it reasonable to expect LICs to borrow? I think you know to a to a point, yes, um, not exclusively, and that's why Covax exists. That's why the U.S. government. Uh, is providing as much support to COVAX as we are and why we've been encouraging others to do more. And, and COVAX now, um, uh, you know, even prior to the, the new U.S. commitment Pfizer, COVAX had raised $9 billion, $9.5 billion, I believe, at the, at the last, as of the, the, the end of the last funding round. So you know, the world has put um, uh, you know, close to $10 billion and, and, and still growing into, into Gavi so far for um, for COVAX, for support to low-income countries to make sure that their most at-risk populations um, and then some can be covered. Um, I do think though, you know, like, yes, there are global benefits. Yes, I always want to see um, wealthy countries continuing to provide more support. And, um, you know, in the US, the US has provided more than, uh, more than anyone in terms of absolute dollars on this. Um, but the, um, you know the, the benefits also accrue to to the countries themselves. So I think as a as a kind of reason to take on debt to to meet a one-off short-term cost, that is a major you know major 
uh, posing major economic risks and is a solvable problem. That that you know that's a reasonable thing to incur debt for. I think um, that the and I think countries are are interested in doing that. The, the the challenge, as I understand it, with the way the financing has been structured from um, the the multilateral development banks is that you know if you're a small country, it's a lot of hoops to jump through to take a loan figure out the manufacturer you want to buy from. The World Bank put a lot of hurdles. They, so they had a much higher bar for being able to access that funding than anyone else did. They, if I recall correctly, they it had to be approved by three different stringent regulatory authorities. Um, whereas with, with, you know, with Gavi, it only had to be approved by either a stringent regulatory authority or have WHO emergency license. So the WHO, so the World Bank made it much harder for countries to access that money. Um, it also fragmented the money. So, you know, what 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 Covax attempts to do, and what say the EU attempted to do, and what the U.S. you know for our states attempted to do was to procure centrally and then allocate. And uh, I think the distinction that I draw is between how the U.S. did our vaccine program this year and how we did um, our PPE support last year. So a year ago, when when the U.S. was in a, a bad situation, the government at the time left the PPE procurement to each individual state and it was chaos and it created competition and um, and it didn't send clear signals to the market. We didn't do that with vaccines. With vaccines, the federal government procured and then allocated to the states based on a formula. Well, the way that the World Bank's money has worked for countries or, or, or not worked as the case may be, looks a lot more like the way PPE worked a year ago than the way vaccines worked a year ago here in the US. It, it, it is fragmenting demand which means you're not sending a core signal of demand to manufacturers. You're not sending assurance of financing to manufacturers. And in the conversations I've had with pharma companies, they've identified that as a big problem. That, you know, the fact that there's $12 billion plus not of, of World Bank and $9 billion of Asian Development Bank and billions more from others out there in the theoretical sense doesn't send them like an individual manufacturer a queer market signal that there is specific demand for their product with financing attached. So they're going to go to where the deals are that give them that. And and that really disadvantages low-income countries as well. So I think that that that's you know that, that as I understand it, there there is a dialogue going on now between Covax and the World Bank on trying to get to a more consolidation and concentration of demand. Um, we have been pushing them for that from the U.S. side for the last few months, because otherwise it's just you know tens of billions of dollars that is late going unused on the most important global priority at the moment. Thanks, Jerry. Marianne, do you want to add something on this COVAX World Bank dialogue? No, because I'm, I'm leading it, of, of course, with some of, of uh, Jeremy's colleague. Indeed, that, that's the intent. Um, to, to be fair, the, the, the World Bank system indeed is based on this retail model that Jeremy was talking about really by country. So at a time when you need indeed to aggregate, especially for low and middle income country, because one of the value of COVAX is also trying to get a sustainable price, right? That's very important, a negotiating power vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis manufacturers. So you, you don't get this. And the problem is that by the time the countries go through the whole loan, in fact, the product is no longer available because remember, we are in, in, in short supply. So people would have already bought it in fact, at the time of reservation, much before the disauthorization of three regulatory authorities, what we see is that people buy the vaccine at the phase three trial. So if you are not there, you are not able to put the money at risk, to my point. Later, even if the money is there, you have nothing to buy. It's, you know, it's coming to the supermarket and having an empty shelves. And so we are working in, indeed to... Um, 
be able to use more of this aggregate aggregation. The good thing is that the bank now has approved already 20 projects and plans to approve 50 by the summer. So we are working to have this aggregation indeed to be able to exercise the options that we have on the table from, from the manufacturers and, and have them reserve in advance and then be able to uh, to provide the countries with with additional doses so so that's the work we we are doing and we are hopeful that uh, <laughs> we'll get there I can't believe that was muted. Um, so we have a, um, another question for you, Marianne, on whether COVAX can meet its target of delivering 1.8 billion doses in 2021 without production from India, or you know, are you relying on further donations from the G7 and other countries to achieve this? Yeah. So part of the of, of the additional funding drive that was. Uh, uh, you know, kindly uh, hosted by, by the U.S. Secretary um, Blinken, uh, was indeed to be able to diversify the portfolio with, uh, in, uh, to be able to reserve doses from other manufacturers more uh, globally, uh, in a sense to, uh, to mitigate the, the, the situation with India while they, they, they go through, through the process. But at the same time, as you know, we have made this... Um, this request indeed for more dose sharing in the immediate, uh, especially from now until Q3, to, uh, to be able to uh, compensate for, 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 for the, the shortage of supply. So I think with the, the, the money that was just um, pledged, we will be in a situation, we should be in a situation to secure the doses and then being able to deliver them up to the beginning of 2022. I think what's important is already to reserve them and be able to uh, to have the certainty that they will be there and be able to roll them out in in the following month. But we are counting both on with this with that additional money on diversifying indeed, and and you may have seen that we have entered into more APAs with manufacturers recently. You know, thanks to the. To, to the additional funding uh, received and we will continue while at the same time, and I think that's great that we, we are, the, the US is, is showing the leadership there asking for those sharing now. What's important in those sharing is really to have that predictability because for a country, it's important to know when the doses are coming because it's also about um, doing the second dose and completing the, the, the full vaccination course for the ones that have started and, and we could not quite uh, uh, complete given the situation. So uh, having predictability and visibility in the dose sharing will be important. Thanks, Marianne. Um, we have a question from Vaccine now. Um, feel free, you know, Ashok or Jeremy, see if you want to address that. Um, what can the UK presidency do to generally raise the ambition on vaccines, particularly while the UK is cutting its other budget? perhaps without getting into the aid cuts, but what can really the, the presidency um, do to really lift this ambition? Um, Jeremy Ashok, either of you wants to take that? Ashok, you're muted. Sorry, if I could take that. Uh, I think the UK uh, presidency, to be fair, has indicated uh, an urgency and an energy on not just the COVID vaccine, but on, on uh, pushing up ambition for vaccines generally. 
to deal with not just this pandemic, but put you know pandemic preparedness generally. Uh, and Prime Minister Johnson, in his summit with Prime Minister Modi a few weeks ago, actually spoke about uh, a health partnership and uh, almost a, a, a health security compact for among countries such as India, the United States, uh, the UK, democracies really, uh, that would be vital to, to ramp up vaccine manufacture uh, capacities, uh, to diversify and ramp up manufacture, vaccine manufacture capacities, in, including in India and other countries, and uh, make these available as quickly as possible uh, to countries across the world, particularly countries in, in the global south. Uh, the UK certainly said the right things and shown the ambition. It's got the, uh, the research facilities to back up a lot of what needs to be done to actually develop new vaccines. And it, in fact, even with the, uh, the, the COVID-19 vaccine, the AstraZeneca uh, Serum Institute of India uh, program worked on the back of uh, research at Oxford. Uh, and I do hope Prime Minister Johnson, during the UK presidency, is able to, to persuade uh, the rest of the G7 to, to actually put in more money towards expanding this entire pipeline, as I said. Thanks. Jeremy, do you want to add anything? Um, you, you know, just uh, the, you know, the announcements from the G7 will be coming out, so I don't want to get out ahead of, ahead of those beyond what's already been publicly um, shared but um but i you know i think there is there is clearly an intent on the part of the g7 leaders to to expand the ambition and kind of accelerate the delivery on global vaccination and there'll be more there'll be much more coming out on that but i won't i won't get ahead of it right we look forward to hearing more um marianne another question for you from sabrina nixon at the british red cross um she says can you please tell us a bit more about innovative finance models that are being used in Gavi's COVAX facility, particularly international finance facility for immunization, and how these models are helping to meet the funding gap? Definitely. And actually, I want to use that and make the transition to your earlier question about what the UK can do, because actually the UK has been a leader in these innovative finance um, mechanism and when the COVAX AMC was launched, it was launched last year, if you remember, by Prime Minister Boris Johnson at our Global Vaccine Summit. So in a sense, they have shown very early, early on the willingness to invest in these instruments that are quite important because they allow to basically spread the budgetary, uh, let's say, expenditures over time. That's what the IFI does, right? You know, the government gives you a pledge over 20 years but instead of waiting 20 years to get the money, you use the money, you go to the capital market and raise the bonds now. So the UK is the leader in IFIM. And, and actually, that's what they have used for their contribution to COVAX. So it's very important because uh, it helps to invest uh, immediately, even though, you know, you may want to spread it uh, uh, over time. But it's also important because it allows actually to, to invest in other uh, interventions without necessarily um, putting all your development money on, on, on in one pot. 
so it has been critical both for EFIM and also for the advanced market commitment because the COVAX advanced market commitment is actually um, uh, uh, derived from another advanced market commitment that we had on pneumonia where the UK also had invested and it's actually the first um, mechanism Gavi had where we were able to introduce a very complex vaccine at the same time in wealthy country and in developing countries. So that's how it was basically the pilot that was very uh, important in helping basically immunize the children in low-income countries against uh, pneumonia, which is actually the primary cause of death for children in these countries. And, and it's a very complex vaccine. So we could test actually uh, the, the, you know, the, the whole mechanism there. And then of course, when the pandemic started, it felt natural to bring it to a much larger scale to, um, to uh, and, and I have to say that it's thanks to, to the UK leadership there. So, so a lot that the UK can do in terms of driving, uh, you know, some of these strategic agenda. And of course, Prime Minister Johnson has been calling on, on uh, vaccinating the world, especially the AMC countries by, by end 2022. So we are hopeful and we know some leaders are already following up. Uh, you know, we are hopeful for, for the G7. Thanks, Maria. We have one other question. I may squeeze in one last one after this because then we have to start wrapping up. Um, so this is from an audience member that doesn't identify themselves to either of the panelists. Uh, what uh, role do you see for Chinese vaccines in the global vaccination campaign as they're rapidly ramping up production and got WHO approval in the last few weeks? Any of you want to address that? Sure, I can. I, I'm happy to say a few words on that. I think you know. First, um, you know, I think I think it's important that we that we be driven by the science, um, both in which vaccines are in use and, and how they're being used. And so, in that sense, um, I, we were we were disappointed over the past few months to see the degree to which um, some of the Chinese vaccines were being pushed. Uh, before they had sought EUL, I mean, we're we're glad now to that you know it's it's good that China has kind of met the same standard of transparency that the other major global vaccines in use have by by uh, uh, by eventually putting its vaccines through through EUL at WHO, um, and we think that that process was was credible and it's it's useful that you know that we can now rely on the information that's out there about the efficacy of those vaccines um, and that they've been open on more more open on that. Um, but what's also concerning, I think, about China's vaccine diplomacy is is the degree to which they've been doing such overt vaccine diplomacy versus um, using their vaccines in a way that's driven by public health. And um, you know, there've been a lot of reports of China um, seeking to extract political concessions uh, with their vaccines. And I think what what our, you know, President Biden has said very clearly is that. Um, that that should you know that shouldn't be done, and, and as the U.S., we're not going to do that. That we're not going to be trying to leverage vaccines into political favors or political concessions. Um, that we're going to give our vaccines in and provide our vaccine support in a way that is driven by public health and is focused on accelerating the end of the pandemic. And we think all countries should do the same. Great, Jeremy Ashok, Marianne, do you want to add anything? And then I'll just do one final round. No, I think what's important, as Jeremy said, is that now it has gone through the pre-qualification process, through the EUL process. So, of course, we'll have to see as part of, of the process also 
uh, you know, in, in a sense, what can be made available, you know, uh, uh, through 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 the through the, the process that 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 we have, and and uh, and see how how that this can this can happen. So we, we have to, to see indeed how these these uh, doses are made available if they can be made available, you know, relatively quickly to help the, 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 the crisis. But obviously, going through the through the process that are there and the transparency that that is needed. Thanks, If I could just add something here, most of the vaccines we we've been using and discussing uh, may nominally belong to one country or the other. May predominantly have been uh, developed in one country, but they are actually international efforts. Because as I said, the, the, the supply chain is very intricate and very international. Uh, and this supply chain will grow and will become even busier in the years to come. Uh, it's important that every segment of the supply chain is uh, driven by, by market principles and by democratic principles. Uh, because why do I say that? Because every segment of the supply chain has to be transparent. Uh, I have to know clearly what my ingredient supplier is doing and my, my customer needs to know what, what I'm doing. Uh, I'd like to emphasize those principles because those principles are critical as, as we move ahead in, in taking on this pandemic and maybe, God forbid, a future one. Great. Let me come to a final lightning round. One minute each. If you had to choose one thing that you really think can make a quantum leap in this global vaccination effort, what do you think that should be? You know, what should be on the top mind of G7 countries as they meet um, this weekend? Who wants to start? One minute each, because we need to wrap up. Two, two, I can stretch to two, but no, no more than that. I mean, I think the two quantum leaps we we need and are, are working towards are addressing um, and addressing and optimizing the the, the supply inputs um, and uh, addressing and improve, expanding country delivery capacity. I think those are the two biggest potential bottlenecks that have the potential to slow the global vaccine effort right now. Shock. Uh, while agreeing with both of Jeremy's points, I would say that. Uh, uh, don't worry about over-investing in the vaccine pipeline. Uh, chances are we will end up over-investing, but it doesn't matter. It'll pay for itself many times over in the long run. So I think to complement, I will say continue financing the, the, the further coverage for 2022, because we do have to think about the pivoting to 2022 and really support right now the development of those sharing, the deployment of those sharing, very important. Great, you incredibly disciplined panelists, because I was you know, sort of budgeting enough time to make sure that we got time, but that means I can give you and the audience five minutes back into your very busy schedule this week. <laughs> so let me just really thank you all, Marianne, Jeremy, Ashok, because this has been incredibly insightful you know, session, and of course the audience for all um, the questions. I think you know what we 
but clearly hurt today is is not just the financing. It's it's the financing is critical, but so is you know the production, the supply, you know the getting the readiness sorted. It's you know as Ashok put it earlier, is the importance of investing in the entire vaccine pipeline from research to production to delivery to making sure that the countries can actually receive it. There's, there there are a lot of barriers, um, but it's obvious that it has to be a priority. Um, these collective global efforts need to happen and you know who better than the the wealthiest countries to really help you know sort of lift this and in many ways it's important also remember you know how small after all the cost of this global vaccine uh, vaccination effort really is you know globally compared to the benefits that it can have you know for the global economy you know the IMF estimated a nine trillion dollar kind of uh, um, benefit in terms of the impact for the global economy you know, in many ways the, the future cost of inaction for the global economy will be far greater than you know financing and sort of really sort of pushing the global vaccination program uh, right now. So I think as as we're up, up we really living with a lot more food for thought and really useful you know perspective that you have shared. Many ways that the very best time to provide the necessary resources and support for the global vaccination effort may have been last year, but the second best time is now. So let's really make sure that, you know, we we see this lift and, you know, we now have to wait and see if the G7 leaders this weekend do take the necessary action to you know, rapidly move forward towards vaccine equity. The US has, you know, got us to a really good start. Let's hope that the other um, countries um, follow. As ODI, we will continue to push for action in the lead up to this moment, G7 now, G20 later um, in October, and really look forward to seeing you all to future conversations and events. Thank you all, particularly our panelists, and wishing you all well.